everybody <laughs> my name is gage and my name is ray and you are listening to gold report a true crime podcast yay. yay we hope you're having a good day and a good week and, and a, a good, good life. life that is always our gesture from us to you that we hope you're having a very safe and happy existence oh yeah, that's the second week in a row. I didn't go crazy into all that. Again, very chill. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying not to be as weird as I can on every single episode. <laughs> so, I think that's why everybody's here, though. They like our weird. <laughs> I would like to think so. I sure do hope so. I want to go ahead and say that this intro is going to be a little bit longer than normal. We actually do have a few things to talk about. So if you'd like to stick around for the conversation, then hell yeah. And if not, that's totally okay, too. You can just skip ahead and get right into the case. It's all up to you. So first thing, and this may seem a little gushy, and I know we say these things all the time, but I would like to give thanks to each and every one of you that are listening. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) This past two to three weeks, we've definitely noticed the increase in interaction from all of you. Um, It's kind of fucking crazy. It's it's wonderful. Like we've had a drastic increase in people commenting on our episodes, telling us that we're doing an okay job or a great job. We have a big influx of people coming in that are new, that are letting us know how much they love the show. It's really, really, really nice. All of the kindness and support that's been coming in. It's just incredible. So that's the first thing. We just want to say that it's all very seen and deeply appreciated. It's truly priceless to us. You guys truly have no idea. Like, this show would absolutely be nothing without all of you. So that's, like, the first big note here. Yeah, and I spend a lot of my time jumping up and down in giddiness because I'm like, oh, it's a new comment or it's a new email. <laughs> right, right. It's fucking amazing. It really, really, truly is. Speaking of emails, uh, this is a good time to jump in and tell you guys how excited I was to get a letter from Angela who says she's a huge fan. Yay! Hello, Angela. She wrote in and said she loved the episode on Eileen Mornos, and she had some questions for me. So I'm going to read this email because she was just precious. It was just adorable to me. It makes me so happy. So she writes, Good afternoon. My name is Angela, and I'm a huge fan. I absolutely love what you did with the Eileen Warnos case. I thought I was a true crime boss, but Ray, like you guys would say, did the damn thing. (laughs) (laughs) She gave me so much more insight that I didn't even know. I really feel like she was railroaded and a victim. I have a question. Ray said in the podcast that there was a horrible documentary that she couldn't even get through. What was the name of that one? So if any of you are wondering, the name of that one was American Boogie Woman Eileen Warnos. And the way that they portrayed her in the beginning, like I said, first five minutes, I couldn't get past it. That's for the rest of you, if you'd like to go check that out. There's that little piece of information. Yeah, so um, I... Gave her also links to other documentaries that she wanted to know about. 
Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, like the selling of a serial killer and the life and story of Eileen Warnos, those types of things. Uh, Nick's documentaries, right? Yeah, Nick's documentaries. So I sent those to her. But uh, she said, I'm a huge true crime fan, but I feel horrible saying like the rest of the world that I thought she was a monster until I listened to your podcast. Anyways, I hope you guys are having a great day week and life oh and i can't not wait to hear back from you guys thank you for all that you do keep it up i think you guys are the cutest in your own little ways oh oh my god i loved it i I could literally just cry thank you so much angela oh my goodness yeah so thank you thank you very much angela for the email all of the thank yous the information you requested I was definitely fangirling that I had some fan mail. It was the sweetest thing ever. That is so awesome. That truly just made my day. (laughs) So next, I would also like to touch on a recent review that we received. And before I go any further, I want to say that we are thankful for this review. Feedback is feedback, positive or negative. So this is not shade throwing. I'm not about to out this person. Not at all. None of that. But we received a review recently from someone who had listened to us and they took our laughing and cutting up as being disrespectful. Mm -hmm. And this person thought that we were laughing at the victim that was involved in the episode, basically. Again, we are thankful for that feedback. We are in no way trying to be immature about it. But um, in context, we just did want to bring up just a few gentle reminders and some other things to you guys. I felt as if it was important. You felt as if it was important. um, And it directly correlates with that review. Mm -hmm. So this next little bit of discussion that we're going to have is going to be kind of like a like a getting to know us kind of moment. Yeah. Um, You know, me and Ray kind of came out of nowhere with this show. We've given small details and things about our lives and a little bit, you know, about who we are as people. But we haven't really talked in depth about those things. To give you guys some insight, like we cut up like this all the time. Absolutely. We are both insanely anxious souls. Oh, boy, are we ever. (laughs) We tend to make jokes or like we make light of uncomfortable or unpleasant conversations or situations like how you hear us interact with each other on the show, we are exactly that in person. We seriously are, and I cannot stress it enough. We laugh at absolutely everything. It's actually a really powerful coping mechanism for us. I personally am a firm believer that if you can laugh at the not-so-pleasant experiences and parts of life, then you can kind of take power away from those things, you know? Yeah. So it's just who we are as people. Like, we literally cannot help but be goofy the way that we are. Like Ray just said, the way that we interact on this show is 100% not scripted. (laughs) It's completely our personality when we're not recording we interact just the exact same we have for many many years you know it's just the gentle reminder for you all is especially if you're new here and you haven't had a chance to really listen to us or listen to a lot of our episodes that reminder is that even though we are goofy and silly and we have you know our ways of handling things we are never in any way in any situation in any context laughing At any case that we cover, you guys, like I can't stress that enough, nor are we laughing at the people involved. I mean, now we will roast the fuck out of the (laughs) perpetrators in most of these cases. will we ever. Yes, because they deserve to be roasted. But when it comes down to the literal events of things and the victims involved and the 
negative impacts that these crimes have had on real people and real families when it comes to that stuff. Never. And I mean, never are we laughing. And we really want you all to understand that, you know, I know we can't please everybody and our vibe may not be for you. And if that's the case, then that's okay. But going forward, this is just how we handle things. This is how we interact naturally. And we do make it a point to be as thorough, as respectful and as kind as we can. That's our standard here. That's what we care about. It's very, very important to us. And these are real stories that happen to real people. And these things have real effects. And we feel those impacts of what has transpired. And we want to share their stories with you in our own way. Absolutely. We're all interested in true crime. I mean, that's why we're here. Right. But we do listen to true crime cases as a source of entertainment. So we just let our personality shine through because we know you guys are trying to get through your day. And you listen for many different reasons. Right. But at the end of the day, we're us. And we love making people smile and laugh. That's just who we are. And that's 100% true. So to reiterate that main point here, me and Ray are anxiety-ridden goblins. <laughs> we laugh as a means to cope and interject some comedic relief. I think that's very necessary with the topic at hand. But going forward... Please know that our laughter is not meant out of disrespect or disregard to the people affected by these crimes. We take that very seriously, and we just wanted to reiterate that. We wanted you guys to understand that. Um, that's just a note to make. And, you know, going even back to that review, we have both reflected on that review, and I can definitely see where she's coming from in ways. You know, mm -hmm. this is not a bashing session. I, I appreciated the feedback, but I see where she's coming from. So that's something that will be consciously noted. And going forward, me and Ray both will do our very best to keep delivering you the best content we can in the most respectful, kind-hearted, and thorough way that we can. That's definitely all we care to do. And we're also still kind of new at this, you guys. Like, we're not a giant famous big podcast yet maybe that will change one day who knows i mean we we are kind of blowing up right now it's it's happening slowly but surely but at the end of the day we're a small podcast we are we just started this maybe seven eight months ago our show has grown a lot since it started if you guys have been listening from the beginning you listened to our very first episode to now and there's a huge huge increase in quality it's just because you know we're learning as we go it's a journey of learning and growing for us. And it is for you guys as well. You know, we're happy to have you on the journey. It's just something we wanted to say going forward before we dive into anything. We just thought that note was important. We're silly. We're goofy. We're definitely our own people, but just never mistake that as us being disrespectful. So that's something that we're going to note and, you know, try to convey a bit better as we go forward. And we're always going to want to hear from you guys because we love you. Only if you consent to it, of course, because consent, consent is important. Very important. Extremely fucking Lots important. Of consent, which, uh, <laughs> which there will be a lack of today, unfortunately, because <laughs> no, Ray. <laughs> because today we're going to be covering Ted Motherfucking Bundy. Oh God! This man was evil. Holy evil. shit! He kidnapped, raped, murdered. Uh, decapitated and so on and so forth and just vile shit to numerous young women during the 1970s and possibly earlier. Bundy confessed to 30 murders he committed in seven states between 1974 and 1978. 
Holy shit. And I believe, wasn't this going on the same time as like Dahmer? Uh, I believe so. I think all of, I think Dahmer, Gacy, Bundy, uh, Kemper, I think they were all operating somewhere in the same timeline. But yeah. It's scary to think about. The 1970s and 80s were. It was an angry time. It was. (laughs) Lord, Lord, Lord. Yeah. From the information that I have taken in. About this case and numerous other cases that's happened in the late 70s, early 80s and stuff like that. I am noticing that there are like a lot of serial killers. Uh, <laughs> like, like a, a lot, lot. Like a lot. A lot. It's really, it really is scary. It's, it's truly scary. Yeah. But this episode's going to be a part one. There's a lot of information out there about Bundy. So there wasn't really a way to do this in less than two or maybe even three parts. Gotcha. So definitely. next week we're going to release part two and I'll have a solid answer on whether this will be more than two parts. But for now, at the very least, it's going to be two. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So this is about to be a long, long ride. It's going to be a long journey, but for our own special coverage on Ted Bundy, I mean, <sighs> This is about to be bad. So today, in part one, I'm going to be telling you guys about Ted's early life, how he grew up, pretty much everything leading up to and including his first attack. This is about to be fucking horrible, you guys. (laughs) Oh, no. I cannot put enough trigger warnings here. This is going to be really bad. Bad, bad, bad. (laughs) Oh, no. Fucking bad, bitch. Bad. Oh, no. So you guys buckle in and grab some simple snacks and maybe something to drink so you don't get dehydrated. Dehydration is going to be the least of your worries as we get through this. Oh, no, it's going to make us uncomfortable. Yeah, uncomfortable. Yeah. Ted Bundy is not just another death row inmate. Convicted of three murders in Florida, suspected of a great many more in Washington State, Oregon, Utah, and Colorado. What's a man like Ted Bundy doing in a place like this? Ted Bundy was a charmer. He charmed the shoes off of He was an enjoyable, likable, attractive person. He was um, thoughtful, charismatic. And overall, he was quite personable. Ted Bundy became infamous to the people in those states partially because of the extreme brutality of his crimes. He was convicted of three murders, but is believed to be the killer of perhaps 40 women. And she was left in a pool of blood in her own bed. The most shocking thing about Ted Bundy is what he is not. He's not a wild beast to look at or to hear. Not brutal seeming, not at first or even at second glance, a man to shun. And that is the horror. As Lucky Severson reports, Ted Bundy was possessed by evil, but he was possessed, too, of a fatal charm. And when he dies in the electric chair, he will have left behind not only a legacy of horror, but maybe also some clues to the heart and mind of a murderer. Mr. Ted Bundy was born Theodore Robert Cowell on November 24th, 1946, to 22-year-old Eleanor Louise Cowell at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers located in Burlington, Vermont. Eleanor always went by her middle name, Louise, so that's just what I'm going to call her moving forward. After some time staying at this home, 
to recover from the birth, Louise and Ted left Vermont to live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania with her parents. Ted's biological father's identity remains a mystery as it has never been confirmed. Wow, gotcha. Now, his original birth certificate lists a Lloyd Marshall, who was a salesman and United States Air Force veteran. But Lloyd was basically like, immediately, no. Like, I want no part in that. Damn, that sucks. Although, there is another version of the certificate that listed his father as unknown. Wow, gotcha. So here's some spook for you in the first five minutes. Spook is already entering the chat. Spook has already entered the chat. Ah. Louise claims she was seduced by a Navy War veteran named Jack Worthington, who, by the way, does not exist. What? So... Like, literally doesn't exist? He does not exist. So, she was claiming that he abandoned her soon after she became pregnant. Gotcha. But authorities actually looked into it, and nobody named Jack Worthington was in the Navy at that time. Like, at all? At all. Wow. So, was the name maybe, like, an alias or something? Or... Well, I'll kind of cover that. Yeah. But some family members didn't believe the story either. However, they had their own suspicions that Ted might have been fathered by Louise's own violent and abusive father, Samuel Cowell. What? So Ted would be a product of incestuous rape. This is already off to a very not good start, Jesus Christ. But, you know, this could also explain why Louise made unfounded claims on who the father was. If she just made up a name and said, oh, yeah, he was this Navy guy, you know. Back around that time, women who had babies out of wedlock were shunned, like heavily shunned. Doesn't matter what the circumstances, you were crucified for it, basically. I mean, I get it was a different time and that happened, but doesn't make it any less insane. To avoid any social stigma or scandal that was going to happen, Ted's maternal grandparents would actually take Ted in as their own. Samuel was actually a deacon in his church, and he couldn't afford a scandal. So if anyone asked, Ted was adopted from an orphanage. Wow. Ted's last name would remain Cowell as they were his grandparents. Gotcha. Family, friends, and even a very young Ted were told that his grandparents were his parents and that his mother was his older sister. And he grew up his whole childhood believing that. Wow. What in the hell? And right quick, I'm going to add that Ted would speak warmly about his grandparents. He was saying that he identified with and respected and clung to his grandfather. However, in 1987, he changed his tune and other family members started joining in to tell the attorneys a much different story. So they claimed that Samuel was a tyrannical bully who beat on his wife and dog. This whole imagery, like the imagery that I'm receiving at this point, very bad. (laughs) very very bad just very very bad my god so it said that samuel was also a bigot and i have no trouble believing i have no trouble believing that either but he would exhibit behaviors 
of religious intolerance, racism, and just being an all-around piece of shit. Wow, fantastic. Ted reported that this one time, Samuel threw Julia, Ted's aunt, down a flight of stairs for oversleeping. What the fuck? Mm -hmm. That is extreme. Ow, my soul. He even swung a neighbor's cat. It was either a neighbor's cat or a neighborhood cat by its tail over his head, and he threw it. Like, that is so fucking cruel. My it's God. horrible, but at the same time, like, the, the visual is just like, oh, God. It's bad. It's so bad. But, like, he is such an uh, asswipe. It's so bad. An asswipe. Like, Samuel... You deserve a pineapple party. <laughs> because what the fuck? What did that cat ever do to you? You cruel, toxic masculinity filled bastard. <laughs> My God, I hate this. He would sometimes speak out loud to unseen presences and would fly off the handle into a violent rage when the question of Ted's paternity was raised. Like, this man was literally unhinged. Jesus. So we're basically dealing with another John Stanley. Basically. Uh, just about. Just yeah. about. Just about. My God. So Samuel also had a rather intense and extensive pornography collection hidden in his greenhouse. Of course he did. <laughs> Of course he did. It's just like we said uh, with Gacy the last two weeks. Why is porn such a reoccurring thing? I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not that I'm, like, anti-porn because I'm not. It's just more of the fact of why is that such a strong commonality that you see with this kind of thing? Like, why the porn and then the violent abuse? Why? <laughs> why? It's odd. I don't you know? know. I mean, I don't I don't get pornography collections in general because like, you know, once you're actually watching porn and then you do the deed, you do the deed and then afterwards you're like, "Okay, I'm disgusted by this." And then you turn it off. And it's just <laughs> It's a morbidly funny and disturbing just commonality that you see. Like we touch on it a little too often, Sex you know. Sex and violence. It's too much. It's Fucking scary. Well, Ted and his cousin would sneak out there and spend hours just looking through this whole collection. And it's crazy that this is a fact. Because could you imagine being known to the world after you're gone because you're a racist, abusive son of a bitch with an extensive porn gallery? In a greenhouse. In a greenhouse. You're out there growing porn. <laughs> Absurd shit, bitch. <laughs> so, Eleanor, his grandmother, because the grandmother's name was also Eleanor. Gotcha. And Eleanor was described as a timid and obedient woman who would apparently undergo electroconvulsive therapy for depression periodically. Oh, wow. And shit. apparently she feared to leave their house toward the end of her life. These descriptions of Ted's grandparents have been questioned due to some notable inconsistencies. So some locals remembered Samuel as a quote-unquote fine man. Which means nothing, though. Right, but like evidently he had this reputation for being a generally nice person. 
But in reality, there's no telling what he was really like. I mean, it could be this case of normal in public and monster in private. Which happens very, very often and is usually the case. Right. And it's really, really common with extremely violent abusers. Correct. Because they put on this facade in public. When they're around people, they aren't abusing. Then behind closed doors, they're a complete fucking monster. And this could very well be the case. I don't know. I just tend to think this. If you have multiple people telling you that they've witnessed this person doing such things, there has to be some truth in it there somewhere that tells you the character of said person, right? Right. At a certain point, yes. It's easy for someone who only sees you in passing to say, oh, I know this person and they're awesome because they only perceive what you want them to perceive and if you're abusive, you're not just going to tell someone you're abusive. Right, because you wouldn't have anyone to abuse if you did. Right, you'd lose that ability to manipulate and abuse. Right, so. it's like I said last week with John Gacy, like with his investigation, police started asking around and more often than not, people were like, holy fuck, John Wayne Gacy, he literally couldn't hurt a fly. Right. And then you find out he's one of the most evil, prolific killers there are and, you know, no one knew. Right. So, and then, I mean, I see that. I see what you are saying. So, Ted's cousin claimed that the negative characterizations of Samuel were likely brought up to explain why his grandson became a serial killer. In a way, it could be true that Samuel is just being painted a certain way to act as a scapegoat for the absolutely horrific things that Ted would do later on. Right. I mean, ultimately, we'll never know. But that's the question to ask. Like... Could these abuse allegations actually have truth to them, or was it all a complex excuse to explain Ted's behavior? Very interesting. My mind is wondering. Additionally, Louise's sister Audrey stated that their mom, Eleanor, couldn't even leave her home because she suffered a stroke because she was overweight, and according to people who knew her, she was not suffering from any mental illness. And supposedly, she never received any shock therapy for her depression either. Whoa, what? Yeah. So, so where would those claims come from? Yeah, My just goodness. something interesting I wanted to throw in there. Wow, that's quite something to claim. Exactly. Wow, okay. In 1950, Ted and Louise, who is his mother, but remember, he thinks it's his older sister... So they packed up and they moved to live with relatives in Tacoma, Washington. And it's here in Tacoma that Louise had Ted's last name changed from Cowell to Nelson. And I was unable to find any further info on the name change, but supposedly that happened. And in 1951, one year after their move to Tacoma, Louise met Johnny Culpepper Bundy at an adult singles night held at Tacoma's First Methodist Church. They, like, hit it off, and on May 19th, Louise and Johnny got hitched. Wow, okay. Soon after that, Johnny adopted Ted, so his name was legally changed to Ted Bundy. Wow. Gotcha. Holy shit. I'd be lying if I said you saying that just didn't... Like Do if, something to It kind of gave me chills a little bit, yeah. Johnny and Louise had three more children together, although one source says that there were four stepchildren. Oh, gotcha. However, I was only able to find three. 
Rich Bundy and two girls that remain unknown. Ted would babysit them, and he spent much of his time doing this. Louise had actually found a job working as a secretary. So Ted would help watch them, and his childhood would, from this point, be a rather happy and fulfilling one. Johnny and Louise were amazing parents together, and they were very, very involved in their children's lives. So they would send the kids to summer camp. They'd go to church every Sunday. They did Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts, the whole shebang. They never showed favoritism, and all of the kids would receive equal time, care, and attention. Gotcha, gotcha. Johnny, he was a good dad, and he tried his best to include Ted in things like camping trips, fishing, and other, like, father-son activities. Right. But Ted would remain emotionally detached from him. It's said that they didn't have a good relationship. They didn't have a bad one. They just didn't have a good one. It wasn't, like, terrific. Right. Ted actually resented Johnny for being uneducated and for being working class. He was either a hospital cook or a military cook. But Johnny wasn't making a whole lot of money, so Ted kind of saw this as beneath him, and he was ashamed by it. Wow, what the fuck, Ted? I know, right? That's pretty bad. At a very early age, Ted started exhibiting bits of disturbing behavior. No surprise there. Oh, no. But very early on, he displayed a very strong interest in things like death, murder, gore, and other morbid topics, but I mean, like, same. Same. But when I say a very early age, I mean a very early age, because there was this one instance where Julia, Louise's younger sister, recalled waking up from a nap to find that she was surrounded by kitchen knives. What the fuck? And three-year-old Ted was standing by the bed, smiling. Another source said... Three he, years old. Three years old. Another source said that he was sitting on the end of the bed laughing. What in the fuck? He was obsessed with knives, and he would often play with them and collect them like a child with knives. That's a fuck no for me. Right. I'm, I was thinking the exact same thing. That's a little no. <laughs> Holy shit. So Ted had a very grandiose or idealized outlook on his life as a child. He viewed himself having an adventure and exploring his surroundings. There was never a shortage of children in the neighborhood to play with. They would play in their yards, in the streets, and even the woods nearby, which is nothing out of the ordinary for those times. I mean... I grew up in the 90s, I was an 80s baby, and as a kid, my brother and I played with the neighbor's kids, and we would, like, split up and find each other in the woods playing paintball. So, it's really not that different from any other era when you think of what kids will do to entertain themselves. Me and my brother, we used to wear our Naruto headbands, and we would throw rubber shuriken and kunai at each other. <laughs> Yeah, I was on that nerdy shit That's early. Awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah. <laughs> but for Ted, he would play marbles with his friends or go frogging or frog hunting. 
I was about to say frogging. Frogging. What the hell? You've never heard of frogging. You're from the South. I've heard of noodling, which I'm scared to death I of. I want to go noodling so bad. No, like literally, bitch, I will be on the shore cheering you on. I'm not about to go put my fucking hand in a fish's mouth. I would be, <laughs> I would be scared to fucking death. No, ma'am. <laughs> so Ted called himself the frog champion. I really hate this because my first reaction was like, oh, little frog champion. Then I was like, mm, it's Ted motherfucking Monday. <laughs> Don't know if I really want it mm, for him, but you know. He says that he was very good at catching frogs and frogging. Gotcha. Noted. In Ted's own words, he said, quote, I prided myself in my ability to spot that pair of bulging eyes, which would bob just above the surface of a murky pond, end quote. Oh, see, normally I'd be like, wow, inspirational. Good job, kid. You're catching frogs. But then the other part of me is like fucking chills. (laughs) I really don't like any of this. Like, I know this is just the beginning. And as I've said in a couple of my cases, you know, Ted the child is not Ted the brutal serial killer. So, like, in right conscious, I feel like we can sympathize and empathize a little bit more with child Ted. But there's also that part of my brain that's like, mm, I don't know, buddy. You go on to do some pretty awful fucked up things. Right. Uh, it's kind of scary that you pride yourself on your ability to capture wild fucking frogs. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know why that just chilled me. It's probably not as chilling as I think it is, but it just feels like it is. His childhood neighbor, Sandy Holt, recalled to Netflix what she knew of the Bundy family by saying, quote, There was a distinct difference between the haves and have-nots in the neighborhood, and Ted's family were in the have-not group. But they could not have been more beaver cleaver if they tried, end quote. Beaver cleaver? So, beaver cleaver, like, um... (laughs) Beaver Cleaver. Oh, my God. I've never heard the terminology. I'm sorry. Um. Okay, so, the, like, there was this show that was on, like, Nick at Night called Leave It Leave It to Beaver. I don't think I recall. Okay. It's, I'm it's not just, cultured. Oh, no. It's just, it's just an old show. It's an old show, and it was pretty great. That's all you need to know about it. So the beaver cleaver is a reference from that. It It is basically saying that their family couldn't be more Brady Bunch. Oh, okay. Does I that gotcha. make more sense? I gotcha. Because one part of me, I was like, but beaver cleaver, but what we're the talking, fuck? We're talking about, you know, like 40s, 50s. Yeah, it just, the terminology just sounded kind of funny. But since I hadn't heard of it before, I also, at the same time, genuinely wanted to know, like, what it meant or where it came from. Anyway, I'm sorry. Continue (laughs) with your story. She also said that Ted was just different. According to Sandy, Ted had a problem for a long time. Like, he had a horrible speech impediment. He'd get teased a lot. He had a problem fitting in with the kids around him. He just couldn't quite get the hang of doing things the other kids were doing. Couldn't tie the knots right. Couldn't shoot the gun right. Couldn't win the races. So he had a terrible temper. Oh, no. She further described him as a bully, saying, quote, He liked to terrify people. He liked to be in charge. He liked to inflict pain and suffering and fear, end quote. What in the Sandy recalls a specific memory where someone actually got severely injured because of Ted. 
Do you know what a tiger trap is? Isn't it like a ground trap? Like a hole in the ground that has either stakes or like something at the bottom. Like it's basically like a pit trap. Yeah. So you have the hole. You have sharpened sticks that are like shoved down in the hole. So they're sticking up. Yeah. You cover the hole in like sticks and leaves and anything that walks over it is going to drop down and get impaled. Right, right. So, yeah, like a a really dangerous pit trap, basically. Yeah, she said that one girl had walked over one of Ted's tiger traps. She fell in and had the entire side of her leg sliced open by one of the sharpened sticks. Oh, my God, A, that is horrific. B, how old was he? Why the fuck was he building tiger traps with literal spikes at the bottom That is very weird. That's very chilling. He had the intent to hurt whatever fell into that. So I'm unsure of what age he would have been at this particular point, but I can say that his behavior was obviously a problem. I mean, he was young, clearly. And it seems to be hidden beneath a mask of normalcy, like this behavior. Wow. I mean, that's usually... How it goes in some extreme cases, but still, that just really blew my mind. Making tiger traps and having children fall into them, that is some, that's some wild shit. It's pretty That's wild. pretty chilling. So I'm going to make a side note here. No one knows exactly where and when Ted began killing. Many Bundy experts, including Ann Rule, who I will explain who she is soon, but... Her and a former King County detective, Robert D. Keppel, believe Ted may have started killing as far back as his early teens. Holy shit. Anne-Marie Burr was an eight-year-old girl from Tacoma who vanished from her home August 13th, 1962. Anne lived not far from Ted Bundy. They basically were in the same neighborhood. Ted would be 15 at this time. And he had a paper route. And this little girl adored him. Like, she followed him around all the time, everywhere. Oh, my God. But one night, Anne disappeared from her home. Her parents found the front door wide open the next day. What in the world? That is some scary shit. The normally locked front door and the living room window were both wide open. No blood or signs of a struggle, and just a lone sneaker print outside the window. Oh, my God. So, who's to say whether or not he murdered her? Like, she adored him so much, she would have followed him anywhere. And she was so young, she wouldn't stop to think, hey, is this wrong? Was her body ever found? or Her body was never found. Oh, my God, how chilling. And Ted denied ever having anything to do with it. There was some street construction work nearby, and the site could have easily been used to hide her body. But if she was buried at the construction site, it went unnoticed because the workers filled in the road with cement. Oh, my God. That is so chilling. Oh, especially in context. You know, he grows up to do what he does. It's just, wow. Can't really make blind assumptions, but I'm also saying that it makes my brain hurt. (laughs) That's about that on that. Get this. Another woman emailed Ann Rule, again, I will explain who she is soon, 
remembering that her ninth grade classmate, Ted Bundy, had asked if she wanted to see, quote, where he had hidden a body, end quote. What in the world? And Donald Burr, Ann's father, is convinced that he saw a young Ted Bundy in a construction ditch on a nearby street the morning his daughter disappeared. Bob oh. Keppel today insists the story gets better and better over the years with him and Anne Marie Burr. Oh my God. But the day before Ted Bundy's execution, Ted told his lawyer that his first attempt to kidnap a woman was in 1969. And he implied that he committed his first actual murder sometime in 1972. And at one point in his death row confessions with Keppel, Bundy said he committed his first murder in 1972. So unfortunately, there's no actual way of knowing, but he was suspected in Ant's murder once he was being investigated of all these other murders he committed. Gotcha. Holy shit, though. But I thought now would be the right time to include her in the story. Gotcha. Also, Ted Bundy himself wrote to the Burrs, the Burr family, in 1986, telling them, quote, You have been misled by rumors about me. I had nothing to do with her disappearance. At the time, I was a normal 14-year-old boy. I had absolutely no desire to harm anyone. I don't know about that, but wow. According to Bundy, quote, even for a serial killer, there's a stigma to killing a helpless young girl, end quote. What, Ted? Really, though? You clearly didn't give a fuck about it. Like, were your other victims not helpless in the situations you put them in? Jesus Christ, what the fuck, Ted? Back to Ted's story. He attended Woodrow Wilson High School in Tacoma, and he really seemed to make the most out of these years. He had a lot going on. He was an excellent student. He was so intelligent and academically gifted that he ran for high school office. Wow. He would play football with his friends. He was on the track team. He went skiing every weekend. And Ted was also very active in a local Methodist church as vice president of the Methodist Youth Fellowship. Wow. He attended every Sunday. And aside from that, he was also involved with a local troop for Boy Scouts of America. So like I said, he has a lot going on. Clearly, I see that. Socially, Ted was shy and introverted throughout his high school and early college years. He would get nervous and stutter at times. He would say later that he hit a wall in high school and that he was unable to understand social behavior. He believed that his social development was stunted. Ted maintained the facade of social activity, but he had no natural sense of how to get along with other people, saying, I don't know what made things tick. I didn't know what made people want to be friends. I didn't know what made people attractive to one another. I didn't know what underlay social interactions. And luckily for him, he did tend to get by with his looks. Like, he was considered good-looking. So his childhood friend, Sandy, says that Ted was trying to be something he wasn't in high school. He claimed that one day he would be president. He was going to show the world that he was, you know, someone to be dealt with. And that's the way that she put it. Oh, that's really chilling yeah. as fuck if you think about it, because I don't know, he kind of did that. He kind of did that. <laughs> oh, no. 
no. Maybe not the way we thought he was going to. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So she claims Bundy would try to fool you and lie to you, and I tend to believe her. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That was, like, kind of a part of his MO, right? Right. (laughs) In retrospect, like, when you look at what he goes on to do and the scary efficiency he had in murdering women, like... He could lie his ass off and you'd believe him. Many women believed him and died. Scarily good at manipulation. Bitch, I I can't. Like, it, it's scary. That's kind of like, I know I've said it a hundred times. Bundy but, scares me. But same. But the information is fresh because we just covered him for two weeks. But, you know, again, Gacy was the same way. People loved him. People trusted him. There's something about that psychopathic charm. Sandy went on to say in her interview that Ted wasn't athletic. Like, he wanted to be number one in class, but he wasn't. And apparently it was very evident to her that he started being uh, a little more sequestered. Like, he was alone more. Gotcha. He kind of became withdrawn. Yeah, like, she noticed this gap in him. Like, he wasn't all there or present. Wow. Holy shit. He was different from other teens his age. Like, he didn't go to dances. He didn't go on beer drinking outings. And he never dated anybody. But he never considered himself to be a social outcast. He was just this good-looking guy that just, you know, was just kind of there. Existing. Existing. Ted was quoted saying, It wasn't that I disliked women or were afraid of them. It was just that I didn't seem to have an inkling as to what to do about them. I honestly can't say why, end quote. So when he was on death row in Florida, he described a part of himself that from a young age was fascinated by images of sex and violence. In early prison interviews, he called this part of himself the entity. The entity. What the hell? While still in his teens, he would look through libraries for detective magazines and books on crime, Focusing on sources that described sexual violence and featured pictures of dead bodies and violent sexuality. Wow. To be honest, I think Papa's extensive greenhouse porn collection might have had a hand in all this. I think Granddad was in some extremely kinky shit and it made an impression on him at a young age. Wow. Like, let's not forget Samuel was an abusive son of a bitch and Ted being around all that at a young age, like... I don't know. Nature versus nurture. Right. And before Ted was even out of high school, he was a compulsive thief. Like, he would frequently shoplift, and he was well on his way to becoming an amateur criminal. As an example, to support his love of skiing, he stole skis and equipment and forged ski lift tickets. Wow, holy shit. He was arrested twice as a juvenile, but those records were later expunged gotcha so he's just out here stealing skis yeah stealing skis and also let me add that he was out here peeping tomming oh no yeah he would look inside women's you know women's windows and uh oh god yeah god god i hate this But anyway, he's, you know, just watching them undress and being a creep and... Being fucking weird. Yeah. Oh, God. In the spring of 1965, Ted Bundy graduated from Woodrow Wilson High. 
he was awarded the scholarship by the University of Puget Sound, UPS, and he enrolled and began that fall taking courses in psychology and oriental studies. After two semesters at UPS, he decided to transfer to Seattle's University of Washington, or UW, where he attended from the fall of 1966 to the spring of 1969. But while he was attending the university, he also worked as a grocery bagger and stalker at a Seattle Safeway store on Queen Anne Hill. He also ended up doing odd jobs on the side to just kind of like make money here or there. Gotcha, gotcha. As part of his course studies in psychology, he would later work as a night shift volunteer at Seattle's Suicide Hotline. Are you kidding me? Could you imagine Ted fucking Bundy working at a suicide crisis center? No fucking way. That is actually, that that's wild. Again, I'm going to bring up Gacy like a hundred times, but that's like what I said about holy shit. Could you imagine being like a child, like a sick child in Chicago at this time, and you can go on later to be like, did you know when I was when I was sick in the hospital as a kid, John Wayne fucking Gacy was a clown for me? Like, I, I wouldn't be able to right. imagine that. That's just crazy as fuck. Right. But, I mean, I don't think anybody really knew that Ted Bundy was, like, working there, because isn't it all anonymous anyway? I don't know a lot of details about that. Honestly, so I can't say for sure. Well, side note, either way, um, at Seattle's Suicide Crisis Center is the same place where he met and worked alongside Ann Rule, who I mentioned earlier. Oh, nice, nice. She was a former Seattle police officer, and at this point, she was beginning her career as a crime writer. Wow, nice. She would later write a biography of Ted Bundy and his crimes, in 1980 called The Stranger Beside Me. Sounds like a good read, honestly. Right? And by the way, in this book, she is the one that first made the connection between Bundy and Ann Burr. I'll include an article in the show notes that discusses further speculation on the topic of her connection to Bundy, but she's the one that first made the connection. Wow, gotcha. Nice. Ted had a relationship with a fellow university student named Diane Edwards. A lot of sources mention her as Stephanie Brooks, which was an alias I assume she may have adapted afterward. Gotcha. He met Diane during his junior year while attending UW in 1967, and Diane closely resembles his future victims. Oh, not good. I don't like that. So Diane's hair, like she wore her hair dark, straight, and parted down the middle. That's an important detail, so hold on to that. Gotcha. Ted said, quote, The relationship I had with Diane had a lasting impact on me. She's a beautifully dressed, beautiful girl, very personable, nice car, great parents. So for a first-time girlfriend, you know, it really, it was really not so bad, end quote. Ted spent a lot of time constantly trying to impress her because he felt that she was out of his league. And according to Ted, she had literally everything he wanted. She had class, money, and influence. Unlike himself, he grew up in poverty. So he worked hard to get approval from his girlfriend and her parents. They were high society, rich, and also I'm assuming they're politically involved somehow 
because Ted would start working for the Republican candidate for Seattle. Holy shit, Gacy was a Democrat and Bundy was a fucking Republican. <laughs> what is I, the point we're saying? They both suck. I, yeah, they both suck, but I would hate to be in a room between the two of them and they get into an argument. Jesus, that's like a whole rabbit hole my brain can't even handle right now, honestly. It's just a funny note to make. Right? He was very materialistic, so the wealth, the class, and the fine things really had his attention. These were all things he wanted for himself, and he claims that Diane inspired him to look at himself and become something more. Well, Ted, <laughs> I don't think you understood the assignment. <laughs> Becoming a serial killer is not the something more she was inspiring you to be. Again, what the fuck, Ted? We were rooting for you, dude. <laughs> you fucked it up. Way up. Once college ended... He began to apply to a number of law schools, and after failing to get into law school, Ted and Diane's relationship quickly dwindled, and over the summer, Diane broke it off. Shortly after her graduation in 1968, she returned to her family home in California, and she then ended the relationship. Fed up with what she described as Ted's immaturity and lack of ambition. Ted was left with the feeling of rejection and resentment. The impact it had on him, he was devastated. Ted was always in control of his emotions, but he was so down bad over her that even his stepbrother, Rich, noticed that he was depressed. So that's saying something. Like, wow. he even dropped out of school over this. And if you look at pictures of Diane and the photos of his victims, like, they look very much alike. He picked girls that look like Diane. That is so chilling and so disgusting. Like, Diane was basically the perfect trophy wife. Like, she was rich, beautiful, smart, just everything he wanted in a partner. You know, even at this point in the story with what you're saying, and I, this is going to be a quick tangent, but it's I'm starting to see, at least, in my own mind, my own perception, there is a pattern and a way of thinking that he has that actually is kind of scary. Right. And I won't elaborate too much on that. But that's really it. It is absolutely fucking scary. I'm just seeing this pattern of behaviors and ways of thinking and ways of looking at things and ways of perception. And I'm just not really liking it. Yeah. I mean, I think he attacked these women as a way to exact his revenge on Diane psychologically. Fuck. Ted said, quote, she stopped writing to me and I started to get fearful of what she was up to. I had this overwhelming fear of rejection that stemmed not just from her, but everything. In there, somewhere, was a desire to have some sort of revenge on Diane. End quote. Anne Rule states that around the same time as the breakup, early 1969, Ted decided to pay a visit to his birthplace, Burlington, Vermont. And while there, he visited the local records clerk and finally uncovered the truth of his parentage. He's He just then, at this point in the story, found that out? Yeah, he's already been in college and everything and breaking up with his first girlfriend and, like... Oh, my... Yeah. Oh, my goodness. But, however, other sources say the circumstances varied. Uh, he told Diane that a cousin showed him a copy of his birth certificate after calling him a bastard. But he told biographers Stephen Mashad and Hugh Ainsworth... That he had found the certificate himself. Either way, only he knows, but 
I'm sure staring at the huge unknown written in the place where your father's name should have been is pretty fucking devastating. I mean, yeah, I can't say that I would know how to handle that, you know? That's sad. So now, Ted knows the truth. Louise, who he believed was his older sister, is actually his mother. They did develop a relationship after he found out, but he felt as if she was withholding and he couldn't really speak to his mom about things like sex or his feelings or anything like that so well he's grown up having this entirely different dynamic with her i mean that that's crazy i can imagine that does change things after this earth-shattering discovery bundy became a more focused and dominant person that same year in 1969 he managed the seattle office of nelson rockefeller's presidential campaign and attended the 1968 Republican National Convention in Miami, Florida, as a Rockefeller supporter. Holy shit. He also worked for the chairman of the Washington Republican Party, who referred to Bundy as a believer in the system. How terrifying. Right. Holy shit. He then re-enrolled at UW in the fall of 1969 with a major in psychology, and this wasn't a course that was just picked for him. Ted chose psychology to learn how to better manipulate people. Oh, uh, that is so scary. Actively studying the deepest parts of the human psyche with the intention to manipulate people, get them to trust you, and then it's game over. That's scary. It's like he wanted to know the most effective, uh, let me act normal, I'm normal, hi, hello, you can trust me facade. Right. And that is truly fucking not only scary, but so calculated. That's well, very calculated. I mean, he he is, like, gifted. Uh, it's a shame that people that get brains like this use, use them for evil. Yeah. You know, not saying every single hyper-intelligent person does that, but more times than not, you see one of these killers or someone who's done something completely heinous, and you find out they have a brain like this, and then they use it for evil shit. It's just, it's it's one of those things to think on. Oh, you mean like uh, the other fucking politicians since the the course of all dawn of time? <laughs> all right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> this time around, Ted had everything on point. He was such an excellent student. He even achieved honors. He was well-liked by his professors, and no one ever pegged him to be anything but normal. Scary. Moving forward, I know the name of the next woman Bundy dated, but I hear she doesn't like her name to be linked to him or the situation anymore. I can't say I would blame her, goodness gracious. So I will just call her Liz out of respect? Gotcha, gotcha. So Ted met Liz at a bar in Seattle, and she was a young divorced secretary with a daughter. She fell madly in love with him, and they would go on to date for more than six years. Wow. She was his girlfriend for the majority of the killings. God. She definitely didn't know anything about the murders, but she saw a whole side of Bundy that no one would ever see. And especially the relationship that they had together, as portrayed in that the one movie, the wickedly, shockingly evil, that movie. Isn't that the one with... Uh, Zac Efron? Yeah, 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 yeah. So in that movie, their relationship is portrayed to be 
very close and very intense and very passionate in their own way. Gotcha. So, you know, her being blind to what he was doing, like, I could see that. Because once you're so madly in love with someone, you're not really going to see the red flags. But as I get further into the story, she does end up realizing realizing a lot and giving his name to the authorities. Oh, my God. How chilling. But we'll get all into that. Gotcha. Gotcha. We'll we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Right. That's a whole nother a whole nother part and a whole nother story for a whole nother time. We are not going to get to explain all of what has transpired in this episode. Gotcha, gotcha. So, You I guys hate... are going to have to stick around. Yeah. <laughs> Ted graduated in the spring of 1973 from UW with his degree in psychology. Soon afterward, he again went to work for the state Republican Party, which included a close relationship with Governor Daniel J. Evans. During this campaign... Ted followed Governor Evans's Democratic opponent, say that five times fast, <laughs> around the state, tape recording his speeches and reporting back to Evans personally. So there's like some espionage going on. <laughs> you just sounded like me. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that just sent me. Holy shit. There was a minor scandal that followed all of this when the Democrats found out about Ted posing as a college student and spying on their campaign. I gather nothing came of it, however, because that's where the information ends regarding that situation. Politically petty. But you know what? Sitting here thinking about it since we have, and I fucking hate you for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> that was such a delayed reaction. It was. I love it you. was. I love I'm sorry, you. but I don't know. My brain just immediately went, wait a minute. So if he's spying on the Democratic Party in the 70s, wait for it to kick in. Oh, no. I wonder I wonder if he was spying on anything that John Gacy was involved in. Well, it's two totally different states, but it definitely is, you know, the same time period. Like, that is kind of one of Wouldn't those things to think about. Wild? It's different states, but I guess that is a tangent you can think on. But, I mean... In the same vein, though, Ted does get around, as he has shown, seven different states. I mean... That is true. I mean, you never know. We'll never know, truly. But I I see what you're saying, though. It's something interesting to think about. Morbidly interesting. Slightly scary. And in the fall of 1973, Bundy enrolled in the law school at the University of Utah. But he did poorly this time around. He began skipping classes... His grades weren't so hot. I'm sure socially he may have had at this point been able to blend in better with people. Right. He has that degree in psychology under his belt and he's manipulating people better and better with each interaction. God, that's so scary. I mean, that's that's what psychopaths fucking do. <laughs> <laughs> Every every interaction, they are learning and growing and using what they know against new people. (laughs) That's what the fuck psychopaths do, okay? I'm so sent. It's the way you literally did your hand and you just did this. This is what the fuck psychopaths do. Like, (laughs) oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I just had to physically hold my shit together. (laughs) 
While on a business trip to California in the summer of 1973, here comes Ted motherfucking Bundy back in here on his bullshit, back into Diane's life with a new look and a new attitude. Oh, you mean Diane? Like the Diane that broke up with him? Uh-huh. That like, oh, wow. Okay. This time... His attitude was a seriously driven, dedicated professional who had been accepted into law school. Mind you, he's still in a relationship with Liz. What the fuck, And neither woman was aware that the other existed. Again, what the fuck, Ted? Ted dated Diane throughout the rest of the year, and things started getting really serious. Holy shit. Ted asked Diane to marry him. What?! While he's with Liz. While he's with Liz. And she accepted. Oh my god. So this is really mean. Two weeks later, shortly after New Year's in 1974, he dumped her. Bundy had commented that he just wanted to prove to himself that he could have married her. Which is just fucking gross. What a fucking pig. And this touches back on that thing that you said. He had this overwhelming desire to get revenge on her. Right. And this is like a whole new level of petty. Like he basically got his fuck you in the end, you know? That To do all of that, that is fucking chilling. That is truly insane. Like not only two timing these poor girls, but taking advantage of someone's love for you. For the sole purpose of using it to hurt them. Right. That's some evil shit. Yeah. And that's that says a lot, again, about how Mr. Bundy is thinking and processing things. And I just, I don't like that. Like, fuck. Right. It was suspected for many years that his first murder happened in December of 1973, which was a murder of a 14-year-old girl named Kathy Devine of Washington State. Kathy looked like many of his victims and she had died under similar circumstances. But DNA analysis led to another man's arrest and conviction for that crime in 2002. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Bundy's earliest known identified murders were committed in 1974 when he was 27. Ted also denies having anything to do with this as well. Of course. A lot of female college students started coming up missing in the Seattle and Oregon area. Stories started circulating that a lot of these women were seen with a handsome man who identified himself as Ted. Now, one of Bundy's favorite ruses was to fake an injury. And then he would intentionally drop an item in front of, like, passing women to get their attention And if someone took the bait and offered him assistance, he would then ask them if they would, like, help him carry whatever to his car. Holy shit. Where he would then launch his attack. In many cases, Bundy strategically parked his Volkswagen Beetle in quiet areas away from potential witnesses. This gave him the time and the space to strike his unsuspecting victim over the head with a crowbar and abduct them. Holy shit. Him abducting or attacking these women really just depended on the situation. And you'll see what I mean as we discuss more of the victims in part two. Mm -hmm. But it was all situational. Gotcha. Gotcha. 
On January 4, 1974, while living in the University District neighborhood of Seattle, where she studied political science at the University of Washington, 18-year-old Johnny Lenz, now known as Karen Sparks Epley, was asleep in her basement apartment. She was woken up in the middle of the night by Ted Bundy brutally beating her with a metal bar that he removed from her bed frame. What the fuck? Now brace yourself. He then used that metal bar to savagely penetrate her. Oh my god. Piercing through her vaginal canal, completely splitting her bladder in two. With her roommate unaware of the attack, Karen laid in a pool of her own blood for somewhere between 18 to 20 hours before she was discovered. Her roommate at first thought she was sleeping, and I could only imagine the horror when realization kicked in. She woke up in the hospital, unable to remember anything that happened. My jaw is on the fucking ground. Karen said, quote, I asked my father, I said, Dad, what happened? And he said, well, you had a little bump in your head, end quote. Someone protect this man at all costs. Like, that's precious. Like, just. What? I'm so. I am so blown. Like, I won't even lie to you. I have not processed after what you said he did to her. That is fucking barbaric. I say that a lot, I know, but my God, he split her bladder in mm-hmm. two yeah. with a fucking rod from her own bed frame. Yeah. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Yeah, he took he took it from her bed frame, started beating her, like, over the head, over her body, like, just beating her. And then he uh, was jamming oh it. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Fuck. So, incredibly, if you couldn't tell, she survived. Thank goodness. Poor fucking girl. Albeit with life-changing injuries, including permanent brain damage with significant losses of... of her vision, and 50% of her hearing, along with a constant ringing in her ears and irreparable damage to her internal organs. She also suffered from epileptic fits, which she eventually overcame with time. Following her attack, Karen says, I wanted to keep quiet. I wanted to have my own life and privacy. She was also quoted saying, women like us, Women that have been attacked, women that have been raped, women that are survivors, they keep their secrets to themselves, she said. I don't know why. We're taught to just get on with it. Oh my god, the chills. Holy shit, literally the chills, like crazy chills. What a statement, like I hate that. Well, there's also a false narrative that Karen was so badly brain damaged that she was institutionalized and incapable of even speaking about the event. But I want to debunk that story because that's not true. Wow. She actually had gone on to live a successful life, becoming an accountant and having a family of her own. She made the decision to carry on and not let the assault define her life. So the next quote was pretty powerful to me. Okay. Um, so I definitely make sure to write it down. Is it a quote from her? It is. Wow. Okay. It is. I, I have, um, 
And and even the quote where she was like, I asked my dad what happened. Like, all of these quotes are from her. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. But um, she said, quote, even though I was victimized, I wasn't a victim, end quote. She chose to focus on the positives in her life, refusing to allow Bundy to take any more away from her. And she further stated, quote, you know, I just wanted to do normal things, be a normal person. I didn't want to be marked as a victim ever, end quote. Wow. Karen's story is not well known. Much of the information on Bundy's victims don't even include her. What? Yeah, because she survived. I mean, gotcha, but still, though, wow. Yeah, but, you know, even though she did survive, I'm sure, I mean, obviously her story is out there because I was able to get a hold of it, but it's just like, she kind of flew under the radar a bit because more people were more concerned with the ones who were actually dead than her. Gotcha. So no one really knows about her story. Her own kids didn't even know. She's believed to be Bundy's first victim, and as I said before, no one really knows when he actually started. That's the scary part for me. He was just murdering women left and right, and no one knows a definitive point of when he started, really. As far as we know, he could have been killing most of his life. So today, there are still unidentified victims of Bundy. It makes me incredibly sad to think about. It's like, even today... We still don't have a completely accurate scope of Ted's carnage. And that is where I'm stopping part one, you guys. Holy shit. Holy shit. Yeah, it's a lot. I can already say that I don't like it. (laughs) I just thought this would be a good stopping point for us. Like, this is also just a good point in the story to reflect and absorb a little bit. Yeah, gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Then next week for part two, we'll be going straight into all the murders and we will also begin to unravel the events leading up to Bundy's arrest. So you guys have that to look forward to. Goodness gracious, this is going to be a long, sad, horrific journey as usual. Right? But I will say for part one, I'm glad we made it through. You did the damn thing. And the damn thing was definitely done. Well, the damn thing is only halfway done. <laughs> oh, no, don't remind me. So, yeah, you guys, we hope you enjoyed slash not really enjoyed our case this week. This is definitely the first part of something awful, as usual. And to close things out today, if you would like to follow me and Ray and all of our weird will great news for you, you can totally do that. You can find us on Facebook at Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram. At Gore Report Podcast. And Twitter. At Gore Report. And don't forget our email, guys. GoreReportPod at gmail.com. Send us a letter. Only if you want to, of course. Of course. So, yeah, you guys, I'm honestly just a little bit uneasy. I don't really have a whole lot to say at the end of this. I'm still very surprised by the beaver cleaver terminology. Yeah, I just don't like any of this, so um, on that note, I'm going to go cry. And that's going to be it for today, you guys. Bye! Bye. Uh, Are you afraid? You should be. You should be.